What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody, on this Wednesday. I'm Kelly Evans, and it's the market handoff. One top strategist says a rotation is ahead, one that says goodbye to Fed dependence, and hello to growth. We'll explain. Plus, the trillion-dollar cushion. Consumers are sitting on a lot of cash right now. How that will impact the holidays, the recovery, and the next COVID relief package. And Bill Gates shorts business travel, self-pickup perks up Target, and the bank of Google has arrived. It's all ahead this hour, but let's start with the markets. Dom Chu has a state of play for us. Dom? So, Kelly, that cash that you just mentioned on the sidelines is still not making its way wholesale into the market, at least in today's trading. As you can see, it's a green day, but very modestly so. The Dow Industrial is up a whopping seven points. We'll call it pretty much flat on the day. The S&P 500, similar moves here, flat on the day as well. And the Nasdaq returning to some outperformance, if you want to call it that, but it's only up about one quarter of one percent. But take a look at one of the parts of the market that's making a fresh record high. That is to do with the retail and the consumer side of things. This ETF, the Spider S&P Retail ETF, ticker XRT, is up nearly 2% right now, buoyed thanks to some strength and some retail names. But this is an equally weighted index of those stocks, meaning it's not just Amazon that dominates it. A lot of smaller retailers are as well, so we'll put a little yellow star up here for them. Retail ETF, record high today. And then... The stock of the day, at least one of them so far, we're taking a look at what's happening with General Motors. Up 4.5%, a lot of real optimism coming back about their electric vehicle strategy and everything else. By the way, this move since the pandemic lows is over 200% gains here for General Motors. And by the way, if you're looking for the record price, that was $46.76 way back in 2018. By the way, this is the best level going all the way back to some of those areas there in 2018. We'll keep an eye on that, Kelly. General Motors, a big stock. Moving it back over to you. I thought for a second you were going to say the record price was 46 years ago because that's how it's felt for GM <laughs> lately, Dom. It's been, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's been a tough space, but they're, they are absolutely crushing it now. It's a, a nice turnaround to Well, see. remember, 10 we'll years, right? Bit, 10 bit, years Dom. since the IPO, so we'll keep it there. Fair enough. We can't go back 46 in that case. Our Dom Chu kicking things off for us today. Pfizer one-upping Moderna today saying final data shows its vaccine is actually 95% effective. Sources are telling our Meg Terrell that the FDA could be meeting to discuss vaccines in early December. Why the delay? Meg joins us now with the latest. Hi, Meg. Hi, Kelly. Well, it seems like every day we get a new piece of vaccine news. So Pfizer now has the final efficacy results from its phase three COVID-19 vaccine trial, and the numbers are even better than the interim look they took last week. Now they say the final case count shows that the vaccine is 95% effective at preventing cases of COVID-19 and really encouraging news that that efficacy was also seen against severe COVID-19 and also for all age groups. Uh, People ages 65 plus saw 94% efficacy being protected 
protected from getting symptomatic COVID. Um, the company also saying the vaccine appeared to be well tolerated, no serious safety concerns, and they, pa- they passed a two-month safety milestone that they needed to to be able to file for FDA emergency use authorization, which they say they now plan to seek within days. And I am hearing from multiple sources that the FDA has asked a panel of outside advisors to mark off December 8th through 10th uh, for a potential meeting to talk about COVID-19 vaccines. And there they could talk both about Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines. Uh, And of course, this is a key step ahead of the FDA potentially giving authorizations to these vaccines uh, to clear them for the market. And so we could be talking about about a month from now, seeing these first two vaccines coming onto the market and starting to get used, Kelly. Meg, in all seriousness, I mean, can't they meet this weekend? Are, are they waiting? We just got final data from Pfizer, I, I suppose, but are they waiting for the same from Moderna before they uh, gather in, in, in what is going to be about three weeks from now? I mean, they're, you know, time is of the essence. It is. And I asked the same question, you know, December 8th feels like an eternity from now. But actually, when you think about what needs to happen for the FDA to hold this meeting and then to potentially clear these vaccines, I mean, it's incredibly fast. It's faster than really we ever see them go. The companies have not yet filed, so they need to prepare their application. In addition to all the safety and efficacy data, they need manufacturing data to submit. So that application is going to go in from both of these companies, Pfizer within days, Moderna within weeks. The FDA needs time to evaluate the data itself, prepare briefing documents for the committee to look at, uh, and then the committee will meet. Uh, And so that's why we're talking about December 8th for this starting to happen. All right. Fair enough. And I know in the grand scheme of things, it is quick. Uh, The best news is just simply the efficacy news still and shares of Pfizer, BioNTech up today. Meg, we appreciate it. Our Meg Terrell with the latest for us. Meantime, we're keeping an eye on the Dow as it does inch back up towards 30,000 today. Get this. The Dow is up 12 percent just since the start of the month. It's on pace for its best month since 1987. We're now at more than 60 percent from the March lows. The S&P is on pace for its best November since 1928. And that has one of my next guests worried. Joining me now are Jamie Cox. He's the managing partner at Harris Financial Group. And Ryan Dietrich is chief market strategist at LPL Financial. Welcome, guys. Ryan, it was uh, your concern I'm talking about uh, regarding just how strong stocks have been this month. Well, that's right, Kelly. You know, first off, thanks for having me back. But I was on with you guys about a month ago and said, you know, historically, October of an election year, you see some weakness in November strong. Like you just mentioned, I don't think anyone expected November to be quite this strong. And as we speak, the Russell 2000 is having its best month in history. So listen, we've been bullish at LPL Research. I've come with you guys for a while, but it just feels like this move's a little extreme. And, and when you're bullish, you're not so lonely anymore, right? Look at sentiment polls, look at put-to-call ratios, flows. I mean, maybe, you know, the rest of the year, you can have a little bit more strength. Santa Claus comes to town, but it doesn't feel so lopsided now to be bullish. And potentially a well-deserved correction uh, makes a lot of sense to us here. And we would be active buyers of it as we continue to think this bull market has a lot of life left. It just feels like people are a little too excited here with these incredible gains we've seen so far this month. Jamie, do you concur with that? Or do you think that the kind of market we're seeing can keep going for a while. And, and also, I mean, what about the fact that often these, these kind of bursts of strength can over the longer term lead to more strength? Well, Kelly, you know, the virus is the economy. And, is, is, and what we're going to see over the next couple of months could be pivotal. We see the vaccine actually delivered. It's being talked about. And I think that's going to carry markets. It's going to keep us going for a little bit longer. But I do think that markets are probably going to take some of the high-flying stocks 
and, and rotate them into things that haven't been doing so well over the past couple of months. You look at banks today. Banks have finally gotten to bed over the past couple of weeks. These, this is very good. These are, these are the indicators that I look at to say that, you know, gosh, you know, you've seen all these terrible things happen with people losing their jobs, potentially losing their homes. And if we have this particular vaccine come through and people can get back to normal, then you can see the stocks that have been beaten down catch a bid. And, and just like Ryan said, there could be a small correction, but I don't think it's going to be a complete sell-off. I think it's going to be more of a rotation-type sell-off where these value-type stocks catch the, 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 the money that rotates from some of the higher flyers. Look at Lowe's, for example. You have yeah. to be perfect if you're one of these work-from-home stocks or one of the stocks that's been a major beneficiary from the pandemic. And I think you're going to see that be the case for the next couple of quarters where the, comp, the comps are going to be difficult for some of the large-cap techs and others. And I think that, by and large, you can see banks, utilities, some of these other, you know, not so sexy sectors do very well. <laughs> Fair enough. I know you're also looking at some of the dividend growth strategies, the likes of Chevron, multinationals. A lot of people are starting to think about how they could benefit from the change in administration there. Ryan, I'll give you the final word then, because, um, you know, I, I do think you're right to point out just how extreme this market move has been. So just give us some additional context on what that could augur for the next few weeks and months. Oh, I mean, you know, let's not forget December historically is a strong month. So you got this interesting dichotomy. But you mentioned the strength we've seen, right? Just after the election, over 65% of all the components of the S&P 500 made a new monthly high. What does that mean? That's incredible strength, Kelly. Back to 1990, it's only happened eight other times. One month later, you tend to get a pullback. But one year later, S&P has been higher every single time. So we talked about it. The strength we saw after that election, whoever won, whatever the sentiment, whatever you know, the Senate says and, and House says, the market is telling us that is incredible strength, likely a little pullback. But it probably means a year from now we're sitting here, we're going to still have a bull market and likely much higher equity prices. Yeah, and hopefully an economic boom at that point. It's just amazing how it's held up in the face of uh, the pandemic worsening for now. Gentlemen, thank you both. Jamie Cox, Ryan Dietrich joining me to talk these markets today. We do want to get out to the bond markets where those newfangled 20-year bonds are up for auction this hour. Rick Santelli, how'd it go? Well, it did not go well. It's the seventh auction of 20-year bonds. I gave it a D as in dog. The yield, 1.422, was higher than the high in the when-issued market when the auction button up. Higher yield, lower price, and it is the highest yield at any of the previous auctions, and the size is the biggest at $27 billion. But no matter where you look, there was weakness. Uh, the bid to cover, 2.27, it was the second lowest. 61.2 on indirects was the second lowest. If you look at 15.3 directs, that was the best, uh, best of breed. It was higher than the six auction average, and 23.5 dealers take uh, a bit more than we'd like them to take. In the final analysis, the indirect bidding was weak. There's your foreign central banks. The direct bidders that were strong, kind of mutual funds, insurance companies, hedgies. And that really gives you a lot of clues uh, because they're more comfortable with it. Yields are starting to creep back up, and that is never good for a 20-year auction. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, there's the 10-year uh, in the green now, uh, up at 88 base points. And thank you for pointing out the indirects, Rick. That's uh, definitely the bee in my bonnet until we can sort out what exactly is happening <laughs> with foreign demand here. Rick Santelli out in Chicago today. Coming up, consumers have a trillion dollars in excess savings. And one strategist says if and when they spend it could determine the economy's next move. 
He'll join us. Speaking of the consumer, Bank of America out with a warning about what they're calling the most disruptive generation ever. An investor should take note. Could spell trouble for some key industries. We'll have those details ahead. We're back after this. Stay with us here on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back with the Dow up big this month and closing in on 30,000. Investors are looking for the next catalyst for this huge rally we've had off the lows. My next guest is looking at consumer savings, saying Americans are sitting on a whopping, whopping $1.3 trillion in excess savings since the pandemic started. And whatever they end up doing with that cash is the key to what lies ahead for stocks and for the whole recovery in 2021. For more, let's bring in Chris Senek. He is chief investment strategist at Wolf Research. Chris, it's great to have you. First of all, where is the savings coming from and who has it? Yeah, so the savings is coming from um, the, the lack of spending during the pandemic, right? So instead of going out and doing sporting events and going out to restaurants and so forth, people stayed home and they, and they saved the money. The other element of the 1.3 trillion of excess savings is coming from stimulus checks that were saved. Consumers in the spring and through the summer received these stimulus checks and didn't feel comfortable to go out and do the types of things they had done in the past, and so they stuck it uh, in the piggy bank. And that leaves us with this huge pile of cash that's that's sitting in bank accounts right now. And I've heard retail analysts talk about why it's why they're not more cautious about the holiday season. You know, we've spoken about this a little bit in the last couple of weeks here on the program. And there are some folks who are skeptical that this applies to Americans writ large. In other words, they think it's just kind of mostly uh, sitting in the checking accounts or bank balance sheets of the wealthiest Americans. How dispersed is it? And what are your expectations for how it gets spent? Yeah, so over the near term, we think m many of the same trends that have persisted from the retail sales report uh, yesterday will, will go on, right? So online spending, um, at-home food, things of that nature. Uh, looking beyond that, um, the, the, the upper end of income folks tend to spend the most amount of money. So the top 20% of income folks spend about 40% of the dollars. So I do think it's skewed towards the higher end. Uh, with, with that said, um, consumer confidence, higher stock prices, all that tends to benefit um, all income levels. But if we had to say one area we'd be positioned for, it'd be more on the higher end, the top 20, top 40 percent of, of income folks that have saved that. So what do you make of the drop in consumer confidence lately? You know, we're all watching it as a often a leading gauge or at least a coincident one of the stock market. The stock market seems to be shaking it off right now. But um, would you expect consumer confidence to rebound? Uh, does it depend on what happens with the next round of COVID relief? And what should the next round of COVID relief look like if we're trying to help out those who are most hurt by the pandemic without accumulating more cash in the balance sheets of those who might not need the excess right now? Yeah, so over the near term, you know, the, the trends are worsening on the virus. We all know that. And that's li likely to lead even to a more stockpile cash. At the same time, that's likely to push a stimulus bill through 
um, Congress, and we're not expecting one until later December, if not uh, January. Uh, and that stimulus, when, when we get it, will be geared towards the lower end. So checks, unemployment benefits being extended and so forth. At the same time, folks, because virus trends are worsening, aren't going to go out to restaurants, aren't going to go to entertainment venues, aren't going to go on vacations and stay in hotels, and there's going to be no business travel. So at the upper end money will be saved as well. And so our sense is that looking out a few months, we'll have a trillion five, a trillion six of excess savings. And once consumers feel confident about a vaccine, and we've had extraordinary positive news recently on the vaccine front, once they feel the trends are going at a tailwind, I think consumers will come out of winter and start spending money again. And I think we'll start to see some of that, Kelly, at the start of the holiday season. Uh, but again, I think it's gonna go to the same okay. patterns online that have shifted before. Well, that was exactly going to be my last question is when we see this shift, which I know for you predicates the whole trade from the growth trade to the reopening trade. So like you said, maybe the start of the holiday season, and that puts a little more uh, importance on it than normal. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Chris Senek is with Wolf Research talking about that $1 trillion savings cushion. Let's turn now to Boeing. Shares of the company spiking earlier today on news the FAA has cleared the troubled 737 MAX jet to fly again. The planes are grounded on March 13th of 2019 following two devastating crashes. But independent regulators in the FAA say design changes and enhancements in training make the jets fit for the skies again. If so, it could put an end to a difficult era for Boeing. The shares have fallen roughly 40 percent since the jet was grounded 20 months ago. The stock is up about 130 percent from its 52-week low in March. But with the pandemic still grounding travel and the overhang of those MAX issues, Boeing shares are still down more than 30 percent year-to-date. Coming up, the market handoff is coming. That's what Jeffrey's chief strategist says about the next few months. He'll join us to explain where he thinks the money will flow. And just when you thought there was no stone left unturned for Google, surprise, they're getting into banking. We have those details ahead. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets are clinging on to small gains right now. The Dow is up almost 150 points at the highs. It's up 12 right now, uh, 29,796, so a couple hundred away from 30K still. The s and is up one point. The Nasdaq's up 30. In terms of the sectors, it's the reopening trade. The industrials, financials, and energy are your leaders. 
healthcare and utilities are the biggest laggards right now. Here are some of the individual movers. Lazy Boy is up on a beat on the top and bottom line and strong comps. The company says current order levels are resulting in an unprecedented backlog. A good session for Lazy Boy. Shares of GoodRx, though, are lower on a downgrade to underweight at J.P. Morgan. The bank pointing to the competitive threat from PrimeRx, the online pharmacy that Amazon launched yesterday. Another 6% drop on top of yesterday's 22% decline for GoodRx. And Tesla is higher after Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas turned bullish on the stock for the first time in years. Jonas says Tesla is on the verge of a profound shift from selling cars to generating high-profit margin recurring software and services. The, he upgraded the stock to overweight, raised his price target to 540. That is 22% upside, and Tesla's up 10.5% today after yesterday's jump on the news that's being added to the S&P 500. You can read more about Jonas's call on CNBC.com slash pro. The U.S. dollar under pressure as investors flock to other markets as the global economy starts to recover. Dollar index is down about 10% since late March, and legendary investor Stan Druckenmiller recently warned it could be on a three- to five-year slide. But my next guest says the dollar will rally. David Zervos joins me now. He is the chief market strategist at Jefferies. And I left that emphatic pause, Dave, because you're the only person I know who thinks the dollar is going higher. Do explain why. Well, Kelly, thanks for having me back. And um, yes, I actually, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a big rally, but I certainly don't see the uh, death of the dollar, uh, as many of your uh, other guests have alluded to. And a number of folks out in the hedge fund world have been uh, playing for, I think. I think you picked that 10% move at the sort of peak of the nastiness when stocks were down 20 or 25% for the year. We've had quite the comeback. Well, what I think is interesting is, is what happens at different stages of the cycle. In the beginning of a cycle, when we get the un- all the uncertainty and stocks are down, everybody floods to the dollar. The dollar becomes not just a safe haven, but a place where people go because Real rates are still too high. The Fed needs to do a lot of work. And it's the only way to delever a portfolio. If you have a lot of assets and a lot of liabilities and your assets go down, you need to get rid of the liabilities somehow. You can either default on them or pay them back. And most liabilities are denominated in dollars. People need the dollars. That's the initial stages. Once the Fed kind of gets things going, uh, we, get, we get that dollar weakness because the Fed's printing. And then we get dollar weakness and stocks back up. But then there's the third phase, which is when the economy is actually organically growing uh, and expected returns on risky investments rise, people flood back to dollar investments and they put uh, money to work in the United States. And that's when we start to see real rates rise on, on not real rates from the Fed, but real rates in the economy from returns on capital. And that becomes dollar supportive. I don't think a lot of people get that nuance, but I think it's a very important one. We saw it in the last cycle as well, starting in 2012-13. Right. And for anyone who thinks this is just a theoretical debate, you know, there are a ton of calls right now about uh, gold shooting higher, about copper, about the precious metals, about stocks. Um, a lot of this goes back to uh, concern that the Chinese have stopped buying our treasuries, concern about the size of the deficits that we're running. But to stick with the investment implications, you would not be in the buy gold camp then. I mean, I, I'm just going to put Bitcoin to the side because it's obviously been up sharply this month. But do you think that kind of steady, if not strong dollar is a headwind to just those asset classes? Is it also a headwind to stocks or no? I, I, I think it depends. Again, it depends on the point of the cycle we're in. This handoff point where organic growth takes over and Fed policy and, and support uh, takes a back seat. 
then I, I think you can have dollar strength and equity market strength. And gold becomes an asset that's not as interesting because it really is a protection asset. It's a zero real return asset. If you think you can earn positive real returns after inflation adjusted returns on Caterpillar stock or Moderna or Pfizer or any of the stocks you guys are talking about every day, if you think there's a positive real return on capital invested with those companies, you're going to be better off there than gold. And the point is the Fed is there to support. They drive risk-free rates down. They get everybody either thinking that there's going to be a lot of inflation or a lot of growth. And most of the time we've seen in the last 30 years when they do these sorts of things, uh, they end up getting the growth, not the inflation. The only time we've really had our major inflation problems in the recent history is in the 70s. And that was due much less uh, about Fed policy, in my opinion, and much more about a completely different labor market where boomers were coming in and we had huge excess demand problems. Yeah. No, I, I lo- it's a bold out of consensus call. And uh, we are always all ears for those. Dave, thanks for joining me to explain it. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Good to see you. Dave Zervos with Jeffries saying rethink the dollar weakness narrative that you might be hearing. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for CNBC News Update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Delta Airlines says today that it will continue to keep middle seats empty on its planes through the end of March. United and American have been selling middle seats since July. Recent research, though, is showing advanced air filtration makes airline travel safer than previously believed. But Delta says it wants to provide what it calls added confidence and reassurance. Carnival is canceling all its planned U.S. cruises through January as it works to meet CDC anti-COVID requirements. It plans to gradually resume cruises, starting with voyages departing from Florida and then Texas. And as U.S. COVID deaths approach 250,000, overworked and emotionally drained nurses in Nebraska are sharing photos of themselves, holding signs, urging and even pleading with people to wear a mask. You are up to date, Kel. I'll see you back here in an hour. Back to you. Yeah, can't imagine how exhausted uh, everybody is. Sue, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Our Sue Herrera. Coming up, sales in the luxury market are looking pretty lowbrow these days. Bill Gates has a warning for the travel industry. Pickup is huge for Target. And why alcohol, meat, and auto, all of those industries should be worried. We're back in a couple. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Robert Frank and Dom Chu. Uh, Welcome, guys. Let's talk some Target. They just delivered a monster third quarter, crushing estimates. Same-store sales nearly doubled expectations. And this year alone, Target has added $6 billion in market share. A big reason is delivery and pickup. Here's what the CEO had to say on Squawk Box. Our numbers compare very favorable to our peers. In fact, in most cases, we're growing at a two, three, or four times the rate of our peers from a physical or a digital standpoint. So we're picking up share across the marketplace. We've seen that all year long, and we think that's gonna continue, not just in the holidays, but as we look to 2021 and beyond. 
And when asked about the future, Cornell said, well, if he could package certainty, that Dom would be Target's top selling item. Who doesn't want certainty, right? If I could package certainty, I'd want to sell it to everybody else out there, too. But Brian Cornell and the folks at Target are trying to do the best that they can in an uncertain time by being as scalable as they possibly can. And that's devoting resources towards things like omnichannel, digital commerce, that sort of thing. The other thing I found interesting about what Target is doing right now is their plan is to open up a lot more parking spots and of their physical locations towards this idea of buy online, pick up in store, or in this case, pick up curbside. That curbside order pickup up 50 some percent over the course of that past quarter is a huge move here. It's something a lot of other brick and mortar retailers are trying to do. So this is Target really navigating the COVID pandemic really well, Kelly. You know, it, Dom, I actually wrote uh, a little bit about my experience at Whole Foods uh, in the same way lately. I, I just discovered the Prime Now app. I, I, didn't, I mean, yes, it's another app. You, I already had Whole Foods app. I already had the Amazon app. This is another app, but I can just, you know, drive up right outside the store. They load the stuff uh, in the back trunk for me. I, I wave and shout, thank you, and I'm on my way. Yeah, it's fantastic. And this this idea as well, for, for many of these brands, it is about trying to leverage their, their kind of acknowledgement with the public as best as they can. Target has done a great job during not just the pandemic, but even prior to that, of building brand awareness for many customers. They're in a commoditized business, but a lot more folks are turning to that Target brand as a destination opposed to others are gaining a lot of market share, Kel. Robert, what would you add? Yeah, look, I, I think this is where the well-capitalized companies that can invest in technology like Target and this curbside pickup is terrific. I've tried it at Target. And also what was interesting is just how across the board the increases were. So you look at electronics up 50%, apparel up 10%, home goods up 20%. So it was, it was that they were bringing in more customers in different ways, but also the people who were coming in the stores, they were just selling them a little bit of everything and a little more of everything. And I just think, again, this is an example where the biggest, most capitalized company whether you're talking about retail or restaurants, are going to do the best even after COVID. Yeah, and again, you, you know they're taking that share from a lot of the mom and pops. They weren't deemed essential. They can't be open right now. It's one of the most unfair things about this pandemic. But to Target's credit, it has absolutely adapted to what people need right now. All right, let's move on, talk a little travel, and bring in Seema Modi for that. At the New York Times Dealbook Conference, Andrew Ross Sorkin asked Bill Gates how the pandemic will change society, specifically how we work and conduct business. The billionaire entrepreneur and philanthropist, well, he had some dire predictions for the future of business travel. My prediction would be that uh, over 50% of business travel and over uh, 30% of days in the office uh, will go away. It will be a very high threshold for actually doing that business trip. Seema, I'm going to go out on a limb here and take the under on, on this call, at least on the business travel side. Maybe he's right about you know the way that, the, that working in the office will change, but as you know, we talked to the hotel CEOs. I mean, everybody understands the first time a company loses a sale because their rival traveled to meet the client and they didn't is the last time they do a Zoom instead of getting on that plane. Exactly. And in fact, uh, earnings calls from Marriott, Hilton and Hyatt suggest that group bookings are already on the rise for the end 
of 2021 on this expectation that by then a vaccine will be widely distributed and available. Um, so I'm not sure everyone will agree with Bill, Ga Bill Gates's forecast. Now, of course, he is also referencing the fact that perhaps some of the work from home strategies used by corporations, uh, some of that will be permanent for some teams. But to your point, there are sales executives, consultants that are really uh, just waiting to get back on the road at when they can. Robert, what do you think? Yeah, look, I, I think Bill Gates doesn't run a company. And I think, you know, for the types of meetings that he has to go to, he mentioned that usually he goes to this pharmaceutical meeting five times a year where he just did it by Zoom. But an executive of Microsoft said, we do expect travel to resume to previous levels. They didn't give a time frame. But I think you're right. The armies of salespeople that will, once they can, get on a plane to get new business and attract and, and get the current business, I think that's the part that, look, is it 50%, is it 70%, is it one year, is it three years? Eventually, business has to get back on the road. Yeah, and I absolutely think some small fraction of it will go away from the kinds of conferences or things where, you know, but, I'm, but maybe 5 or 8%. I mean, Robert, I was shocked he said 50%. I mean, listen, by the way, he might not run a company right now, but he runs a, an enormous philanthropy that does business all over the world. So in that sense, I would imagine he's somebody who is in the skies all the time, or maybe he's just on the private jet. I don't know. Yeah, no, and, and you, you think about his friendship with Warren Buffett, who, of course, sold all his airline stocks early in the year, a call that many people criticized shortly after in the spring when those airline stocks rebounded, but now actually looks like the right call. And, and you know, he does yep. know so much, not just about American business, but about the travel business. So you're right. I don't know if it's 50 or 60. It will take a long time to come back, but I think it does. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I, don't know, I just think so much more is going to go back to normal as soon as it as soon as it can, whenever that is, as soon as it can. Um, Seema, stick around uh, with us for the rest of this, if you will. Gen Z, this is a great headline from Bank of America saying that this youngest generation, the Gen Zers, are the most disruptive generation ever. That's according to a new report that the bank put out today. They're saying that people born between 1996 and 2016 belong to a socially involved generation that largely lives online, which we already know. Gen Z's buying power, they say, is set to surpass millennials in about 10 years' time. They think that'll boost e-commerce, media, and ESG investing. But industries that could take a huge hit, alcohol, meat, cars, travel, and fast fashion. For instance, we know only half of U.S. teens can drive. Seema, why do you think travel takes a hit here? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think in general, this generation is so much more tech savvy. They're using social media at a faster rate and they're using it to make big buying decisions. So perhaps that's where travel comes into play. But I think some of these other trends around alcohol and meat, uh, a focus towards uh, vegan and beyond meat burgers versus uh, regular meat. I think these, this is the type of decisions and habits that are really starting to take uh, into account for this specific generation. And I wonder, Dom, if there's kind of like an eco-sustainability issue there where they think, you know, travel, that's, that's wasteful. Yeah, and it increases your carbon footprint, right? I mean, if you're, if you're driving in a car, exactly. you're flying in a plane, you're going in a, in, in a luxury cruise somewhere, you're burning some type of fossil fuel or using some kind of fossil fuel to drive the electricity behind it. So maybe there's an ESG angle here. I, I think that the curious part for me about this whole idea is that we've been hearing for so long that these younger generations are, are at such a comparative disadvantage for earning power and wealth that they may not. I mean, the fact that they're saying only 10 years for them to catch up in terms of 
millennials in terms of their spending. I, I just don't see it happening if those old stories were true about just how tough the younger generation has in terms of getting good jobs and finding ways to actually make and create wealth. Interesting. Robert, I also thought, I mean, I think the number was about a third uh, of teens are interested in alcohol or, or a third of the generation. I don't know exactly how they, how they got this information, uh, but it's not a big share. And that's a definite change. Yeah, look, the phrase that caught me, I, ha I have two daughters who are in this generation, and when they said socially involved, financially conservative, I, I think th that phrase really struck home for me. You know, they're very activist in their buying, in the companies that they support, but they're, they're quite conservative in the way that they look at luxury, at spending, at wealth. Um, they're not as aspirational as previous generations. I think this goes to Dom's point and that they really care about the, the extent to which they consume could harm the planet and could even harm society from an inequality point of view. Uh, so they're very conscious about their buying, about expressing their values through what they buy, and at least for now, buying less because they, to your point, they just don't have much money yet. We'll see when they get to peak earning power <laughs> whether that changes. And that's going to be tough, right, Kelly, yeah, for the cruise lines that have been putting a lot of money towards sort of getting that generation on board, uh, albeit they're not sailing right now. But when they do get back to sea in early 2021, or that's the hope, they're hoping that it's that generation that will uh, start to consider this as a travel option. We'll see. Absolutely. And just to kind of put a point on it, so uh, they said the decline in underage drinking among 12 to 20 year old boys has gone from 29 percent of people drinking in 2009 to just 17 percent in 2019. Ten point drop. The decline for girls has gone from 25 percent to just under 20 percent. So as things stand, they say more girls drink underage now in the U.S. than boys. I mean, guys, there's a lot for me to wrap my head around here <laughs> uh, and a lot for maybe investors to think about in these industries in the longer run. Uh, let's close it out and talk about what uh, some of the changes we're seeing in luxury. This one's not so much generational. It's uh, geographical. We're speeding up the importance of the Chinese consumer. Uh, luxury spend down 22 percent this year, and it won't return to pre-COVID levels until 2023, according to a new report from Bain. And they're saying that mainland China will account for half of all global luxury sales in the next five years. Robert, I mean, we've already seen brands obviously catering to the Chinese. I wonder, and I know I raise this a lot, but, you know, in the long run, who you sell to is kind of dictates your values. And I just wonder if there's kind of a, a collision coming at some point in this industry or not, if they can just kind of keep finding some way to kind of delicately uh, navigate between China and the U.S. You're so right. Who you sell to not only dictates your values, but it dictates your products. So you've got three things going on in luxury right now. You've got to shift away from baby boomers toward Gen Y and Gen Z. You've got to shift from retail to digital. And you've got to shift from the West to China. So that means that all the products that these companies sell have to change. And that means price points have to come down. So you're selling sort of lower price points, but you're also selling more locally oriented goods. So if you look at what LVMH is doing, which I think has it better than anyone else when it comes to solving China, they're producing a lot of products that are based on the Chinese zodiac, based on a lot of sort of Chinese pride symbols and colors. 
and they're winning in that market, it also means you have to put a lot of physical stores in China because even with the shift to digital, more than two thirds of luxury sales, even five years from now, will still be from a physical location. So you look at companies like hmm. Tapestry, which are still kind of US oriented, they're gonna lag behind, whereas LVMH and Richemont, to some extent uh, caring, those are gonna be the guys that succeed because they're better in China. All right, Don, we'll give you the last word to wrap this up for everybody. If the Chinese consumer becomes anything like the U.S. consumer, yes, China's going to be a massive growth market. <laughs> they still have some runway in that regard, at least. Uh, thank you all today. Robert Frank, Sima Modi, and Dom Chu joining us for this edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up after this quick break, it's uh, we're on the trail of what authorities call the money mules, fraudsters who exploit the most popular apps to send and receive money. It's a CNBC exclusive investigation that you don't want to miss, and we'll bring that to you next. back. The government's Paycheck Protection Program, designed to help small businesses navigate the pandemic, has been ground zero for fraud. Nearly 100 people around the country have been charged so far with attempting to steal more than $240 million. And now CNBC has learned that some of that money is being laundered through popular apps used every day legally to send and receive funds. Here's Kayla Tausche on the trail of what police call the money mules. I've never seen in my 28 years experience the amount of fraud that I've seen currently. In this music video, L.A. rapper Nuke Bizzle brags about getting rich by stealing COVID-19 unemployment benefits. The video says it was produced just for entertainment purposes, but a criminal complaint claims otherwise. The rapper is facing three felony charges for obtaining more than $1.2 million in those benefits, some of the money accessed on cash app transactions. He has pled not guilty and his attorney declined to comment. Faster payments means faster fraud. Secret Service Supervisor Roy Dotson says fraudsters can easily exploit Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, and Zelle to move money back and forth. The $2 trillion CARES Act, an easy target. The Secret Service has more than 700 pending criminal investigations into COVID-related fraud, and they increasingly involve one of these apps. How easy has this type of fraud become to conduct for these criminals? Extremely easy, um, just because of the online application process that's in place. That ability makes it something that they can do remotely and then direct that to different money mules across the country. Here's how it works. Criminals illegally apply for and obtain funds from a program like the Paycheck Protection Program. Once the money hits, they bounce it to another account and then another, obscuring the money trail, making it harder to trace. Thousands of law enforcement working across the country may be no match for the scope and speed of the fraud underway. We have seen an explosion of fraud. Now you get to hide behind a digital device. Detectives Ricardo Pena and Jason DeLuca of the Coral Springs, Florida Police Department say criminals are also moving money using the apps, targeting people hit hard by the pandemic. Fraudsters solicit innocent victims on social media, promising help with bills through Cash App, Others promising free money, just direct message for details. One of the schemes that they're doing is they'll get you hooked. They'll be like, hey, listen, that one dollar that you send me, I could make it ten dollars. And they'll be like, OK, so what is there to lose? In these surveillance photos, a suspect is cashing out money at a Florida ATM. 
Police say the money came from fraudulent checks with funds sent through Cash App by an unwitting victim. You send them money, they could disappear. They'll block you and you cannot talk to them anymore. It's made it very easy to steal a victim's funds and then transfer it not only to one location, but then to another and another. Was it inevitable when those programs got passed that there would be fraud? Or was there something that Congress could have and should have done to put guardrails and oversight in the programs to keep this from happening? It was inevitable, just the amount of money. You're going to have different uh, criminal organizations and individuals, basic scam artists. They're going to try to take advantage of that. Cash App says it is investing in fraud-fighting resources like new staff and technology. PayPal, which owns Venmo, says it too is aggressive in fighting fraud with what it calls enhanced transaction monitoring to try to detect unusual payment patterns on the platform. And for Zelle, it would decline to discuss specific anti-fraud techniques, but said once consumers report suspicious activity, Kelly, that they partner with banks and credit card unions to shut it down. Kayla, what do you think it is about unemployment insurance, especially the small business, the disaster loan programs that are just so open and inviting to criminals? Well, one of the hallmarks of these programs is also its loophole, Kelly, and that is the online application. Of course, banks and these agencies do not want people applying in person or on paper because there is a pandemic going on. So they've made the application processes very easy and you can access them online. But that means that there are fewer checks and balances and that pretty much anyone can pull up the website, fill it out and submit it for money. Yeah. Kayla, thank you. It's a great investigation, really important stuff, especially as we look at potentially another round. Uh, Kayla Tausche in Washington. Coming up, Google's making another splashy move today that could take market share away from digital payment players. Speaking of PayPal and Square, we'll tell you how and how big of a threat it could be to the competition. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange, keeping an eye on markets. You saw those tiny gains at the top of the hour. Couldn't hold them. We've gone negative for all three of the major averages right now. Again, the Dow is up nearly 150 points at the highs. It's down 50 right now. The s and is down a quarter of 1%. It's been a good year, though, for the digital payment stocks, with Square nearly tripling since January. But competition is about to grow. Google getting more serious today about taking a slice of that market. Kate Rooney joins me now with the details. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly, Google is getting into banking and it's taking a page from Venmo and Square's book by letting users send money to friends through Google Pay. The tech giant relaunched its payments app today and added a peer-to-peer feature that's taken off at PayPal and Square as people flock to digital payments during the pandemic. The app connects to Google's suite of other products. For example, people can link their Gmail and Google photo accounts to get things like spending trends and the ability to search through photos for receipts. Google did say they will, quote, never sell that data to third parties or share transaction history with the rest of Google for targeting ads. On the banking side, the tech giant is partnering with Citi and Stanford Credit Union to offer checking and savings accounts and an optional debit card. They say they'll add additional bank partners next year. Kelly, back to you. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Kate. And, and Kate, by the way, I mean, I don't want to embarrass you, but you did win the CNBC Virtual 5K, did you not? <laughs> Cal, you're a former midfielder. I bet you, you'd be neck and neck. <laughs> Thank you, though. No way. Not these days. Uh, Kate Rudy out west for us. 
<laughs> very, very good. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. And coming up on Power Lunch, we're going to speak with Marcus Limonis, host of The Profit and the CEO of Camping World, about his new series, Street of Dreams, and the state of the consumer right now. I will join John Fort after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.